September 12, 1992. The Space Shuttle Endeavour crew are about to embark on a week-long mission. Among the seven chosen is the first African-American female astronaut. This Star Trek fan has always dreamed of going to space. Her lifelong goal is about to be realized. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She's done even deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so why couldn't I? That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. In 1987, Dr. Mae Jamison was one of only 15 selected for the prestigious NASA program. And five years later, the first black woman to fly into space. At just 16, Jemison went to Stanford University and studied chemical engineering. After graduating med school, she managed the entire healthcare program for the Peace Corps, working in Cambodian refugee camps and in West Africa. But May couldn't let go of her burning desire to become an astronaut. A cold call to receptionists at Kennedy Space Center changed all that. May Jemison was about to make history. People will say, well, what is it like being the, the, the first African-American woman astronaut, the first astronaut woman of color in the world to go into space? Yeah. And what do you think about people who think that's really cool? And I'm just having a hard time with that because I would have been an astronaut if there had been, never been anyone in the world who had gone right. into space. Regardless of whether or you're a woman been, or you're black. And if there had been thousands of people, I want to go into space, right? right? So I always assumed I would go into space. There was no doubt? Yet, no. That's amazing. The story of you calling up to be an astronaut, like literally just picking up the phone. I mean, talk about knowing what you want. Where does that power come from? It's so audacious what you did. Like, can you tell us about that phone call? I'm just wondering, like, were you nervous or were you just like, no, they're going to take me. I'm an astronaut. <laughs> Calling up to Johnson Space Center. Yeah. I know they were doing astronaut selections. And I said, um, I'd like to get an application to the astronaut program. They said, okay, we're going to transfer you to the astronaut selection office. So, when? <laughs> and they knew. They transferred me, gave them the name. They sent out the application. Wow. That was the beginning and, of your journey. And, and, you know, the thing is, is you never know until you try. One of the things that I think that keeps people not uh, progressing and getting to where they want to be mm -hmm. is they're afraid someone may laugh at them. Hmm. Right. Um, that and so that 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 fear keeps you from moving forward. And it's not that I've conquered all my fears about doing certain things, but it's really about how do you move forward? Hmm. You have to sometimes risk things. Yeah. You know, and if somebody laughs at you, what the hell? I, I think that's just so wonderful for. Well, look, I mean, I know that wasn't your per it had nothing to do with you being a woman or being an African-American woman to be an astronaut. You just wanted to be an astronaut. But I wanted to go into space. You wanted to, yes, I'm sorry. And how, however I could get there, if I could have stood in a cornfield yes. with aluminum foil on my head and or been a whole bunch of balloons. And guaranteed, no, I was going to try with E.T. Oh, E.T. With the cornfield. <laughs> but I didn't know that was going to work, so yeah. I had to call Johnson. Yeah, of course. Hey, I need to hitch a ride <laughs> and get up there. May's dream to enter the NASA astronaut training program was cut short. In 1986, the space shuttle disaster, which shocked the world, put space travel on hold. But the next year, 
she reapplied and was accepted as one of 15 candidates in a highly competitive field of over 2,000 applicants. On September 12, 1992, Mae Jemison became the first African-American woman in space. The space shuttle Endeavour carried her and six other astronauts on 126 orbits around the Earth. You know, one of the things I read, which I, I just... I'm so heartfelt reading about when you launched and you looked down on your hometown of Chicago. And I just felt something because the other day I saw a, a, a photograph of New Zealand from space. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, oh, wow, I'd love to see that. And, and I'm just thinking as a little girl, the idea that one day you would look down on Chicago and see this place where you grew up. I- to be able to get that that thought process, I'd have to go back and imagine being a little girl who met me. Yeah. Right? And what it would have been like well, what if would I you had have been said a to little, that little girl. girl. What would you have said? I don't know what I would have said, but I know that the little girl would have had a great big grin on her face, oh, right? yeah. But when you look down on Chicago, were your parents down there? No, they were They were actually, they stayed at Kennedy's, uh, oh. they stayed in Orlando until I got back. Can you imagine as parents what that would be like? <laughs> you know, to have brought you up and tried so hard to give you everything that they possibly could as parents. And then they see their little girl because, you know, they were thinking of you as a little girl in that. You know, I right? never asked them about but Can that. you imagine? Like, I'm thinking of my daughter. If, if my daughter ends up going to space, I'll be thinking of her as the little girl I used to carry <laughs> on my shoulders. I'm like, wow, you know, excited, but also scared. Well, by the time I went to the astronaut program, I'd done a couple other things to sort of... <laughs> make them proud? <laughs> well, I don't know about make them proud, put a little people on edge. I, yeah. I worked in a Cambodian refugee camp. You worked um, for Peace, Peace Corps, too. Well, I worked for... I was an Area Peace Corps medical officer for Sierra Leone in Liberia uh, for two and a half years. I literally worked in a Cambodian refugee camp on the, the border with them when the Khmer Rouge, when the, everybody, the Khmer oh, left. Wow. And, and I went on patrols with the Thai military. <laughs> And it has these pictures. You like, like living on the thing. edge, don't you? No, it's... You it's, just find yourself on the edge <laughs> somehow. I don't think of it that way. I mean, well, it's just like you try stuff, right? You, but it's not foolishness. Like, no, I'm not going to put myself in... That curiosity is taking you to these places. And you, and you, and you think about it a little bit differently, right? And you, do you, you, do you make it. lists? Are you a, I mean, how... All the things that you've achieved, is it, it's, it's just wonderful to look at all the different things that you've done and... And to be where you are now and be able to share your knowledge and inspiration. Are you someone who sits down and you go, I'm going to do this and I'm going to travel here? Or is it just something, do you just sort of roll with the punches or how does that work? I think you sort of have things in the back of your mind. And then if you're a busybody, then you're open to opportunities and things that may happen. So I knew that I wanted to, when I was, um, always was very interested in travel and being able to go in different places in the world. And so you're just sort of listening to see when those opportunities come up. Sometimes you're very methodical and directed about mm-hmm. it. I knew after I had experienced being working with the flying doctors in East Africa, after I had worked in a Cambodian refugee camp in medical school, I knew I wanted to go somewhere and work in a developing country for a long time before I you know, went on and did my advanced technology kind of biomedical engineering career. And so I was very methodical about that. Mm. And I could have gone as a doc or I could have gone as an engineer. I really didn't care. And so you're just open to those opportunities and you look for it. Did you share that with those around you? And did they embrace the idea or did they just say, oh, yeah, you're a dreamer, you know, or 
like what what was that support mechanism like around you your family and i chose my parents well yes that's the first thing i did okay and i was um they were they were very supportive of my curiosity. I was a third of three children, so my brother and sister, I used to hang out with them and their projects. I was pretty precocious, and they were very bright and doing really neat things. And so I was just, um, I had this freedom to, I had all the books with the, you know, about space uh -huh. exploration. I was always looking stuff, but I was always doing science projects, but I wanted to be a dancer, for example. And I talked my mother into to making sure I had dance classes, and I would go to those. I had art classes, all of these kinds of things. And I would tell people that I assume I'd go into space, and I had teachers who believed me. But during that time, there were no women astronauts in the United States. Valentina Tureshkova had gone up in Russia. Yeah, and was, people, that was quite early on, too. 63. 63. 63. Which is, what, 20 years before the first? Sally Ride, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so I knew that as a little girl. Yeah. But even if I didn't know it, I was I was this adamant women's liberal as a little girl, right? Yeah. Like a seven, eight year old going around telling people, uh, uh, no, this is the way it is. But when people tried to tell me that there were reasons why women didn't go into space, and even my dad or somebody might try to tell me the things, I was just like, y'all wrong. <laughs> it's just not true. Yeah. And so I just didn't believe it. May never stopped believing in herself. Young and full of dreams, she went to Stanford University at just 16 years old. I'm, I'm interested in that, that pathway in your life. You're obviously very creative and you can dance and then you've also got this amazing mind to be able to become a doctor and was there a junction point? Was there, was there a moment in your life where you went, I'm going to go, you know, I don't know whether to go left or right? Was there a, uh, a pivotal point, I guess? Well, I mean, I always liked the sciences. I always liked the arts when I was a little kid. I danced all the time. I did art classes still dance? and stuff. Still get up and dance? I, I, I can shake a leg every now and then. Right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I did art classes because these all things were all exciting. Every now and then you have to make a decision as yeah. to what you're going to do, right? So at some point, before I went to medical school, as I was graduating from college, I was a chemical engineering major, and I majored in African studies as well. But I danced all the way through uh, college. And the decision was, do I go to New York City to become a professional dancer or go to medical school? Yeah. That was a decision point. I can go to medical school because I can still dance. Was and I still took classes at Alvin Ailey and all of those kind of things. But I couldn't become a professional dancer because you need to be fairly young and you need to still have all of that, you know. Yeah. Even at 20, when I was graduating from college, I was kind of old for pursuing being a professional dancer, right? Um, but, you know, that's a decision point and you, sometimes you can't do everything. Yeah, having grown up in the 60s and the changes that you have seen in, 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 in the world, I mean, just in the last decade, how much the world has changed. And our attitudes towards race and women and, you know, homosexual law reform and all of these things. For, for those people in 2018, young people, they're listening to you and they feel like they have obstacles in their way uh, and, and that they can't get out of the place that they're in. And some of them are in really difficult situations. What do you say to them? What are things that will help them have some hope, I guess, that they can make a move forward and do the things they want to do? Well, so we, we always have hope, yeah. right? And we have to have faith in ourselves that we have the ability to do this. So 
the one thing I always talk about is to don't just look at the obstacle. So sometimes we get stuck looking at the obstacle and trying to make it go away. I always say, what is it that you want? And then figure out how to get that. That obstacle might, that might have to hang out by itself, but I'm going to go over here on this other side right? I may have to do this a little bit differently, but I'm going to still get what I want. I used to keep the word purpose in front of my desk at NASA so that I knew why was I there? I was there because I wanted to go into space. That's the reason I was there. So whatever happens, what was my purpose? I wanted to go into space. What do I need to do to make sure that I go into space? I love that. And, and I think that that's how you deal with some of these obstacles because some people may never change, Yeah. right? You may never get someone who's racist, sexist, or just belligerently ignorant. Yes. You may not ever get them to change. You bring up a good point, May, because what I've found is I've got older and I grew up as the only white kid in, in my class. And so I sort of saw racism the other way. I didn't know racism towards black people. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned as I've got older is I'm more interested in why someone is racist or why they think a certain way. I'm I'm just so intrigued. Like, how did your mind, your beautiful human mind, get to that place where you could have such hatred for somebody who is different from you? And, And I think that's where we're getting hung up right now in the world where there isn't enough of this dialogue. And that dialogue comes from communicating with each other, where we're connecting with each other, where we're connecting with the world. So I'm, I'm just hoping that this new generation, that the good thing that will come from technology is that we'll connect with each other and find a way to talk to each other and understand and bridge that gap somehow. Well, I think one of the things I've always noticed that when people are near other people mm. and they have to have an interplay, that ideas start to change mm. and they start to form differently, right? And so a lot of the work that I've done has been to do that. So when I started, when I first got out of NASA, I started a program called The Earth We Share, mm. an international science camp, brought kids from around the world. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah, it's amazing. And, yeah. And with, you know, kids from rural areas in the United States and cities and different countries, when they're like 12 to 16 years of age, because they have enough background in their own culture to be able to share it, but they're still very hungry to learn different things. And we never do anything by ourselves. So I've always felt that we need to think through this. And the more you're around people, the more uh, connected, the more you, you can see the humanity in others. I don't think that we feel connected to the rest of the world. We don't feel connected to each other. We think that we're not connected to the earth, right? That we can continue to do whatever we want and the earth will be able to absorb it and still support our life form. Let me go to my space flight. Hmm. I remember when I was in space, I looked out at the earth and there was this thin shimmering layer of blue light that our our atmosphere, absolutely stunning. Hmm. You could see the earth almost like iridescent from within, just beautiful. And it confirms something I always believed. At that time, people were always using the phrase, save the earth. The earth doesn't need to be saved. We need to be saved. We need to be saved. It's the height of human hubris and arrogance to think that the earth needs us. 
my dad's a scientist and he he always says I say to him dad I feel so bad like what we're doing to the planet and he he's with the Department of Conservation in New Zealand and he just says to me Phil don't worry about the earth the earth is going to be fine everything that's happening on the crust of the earth eventually will fold in and it will just recycle <laughs> and it will come back and it will will be long gone and you do not need to worry that about the earth us right yes, we'll just <laughs> we're gonna... fold it in and melt it out and we have to make sure that we treat it in such a way that it continues to sustain our life form. And that's the big thing. So how do we do that? Yeah. How do we connect? We can't tell people things. Because we, we already know these things. Yes. Right? We already know this stuff. I think it's by experience, by giving them some other way of obtaining this. As humans, we learn through experience. And so it's really important to be able to provide positive kinds of experiences and experiences that make us think and move forward. You know, not just telling folks stuff, but people also be ready to listen to you once they have an experience that tells them this is important, that informs them. We live in a country, and if I'm not mistaken, we use up what we're over 300 million people. We use up something like 30% of the world's resources. resources. It's not sustainable. At some point, like you said, we have to see that we are all sharing this space and that there are only so many resources to go around. But like you said, there are so many ways that we should be sharing them. How does how does this happen? How it does it mean that there's a large group of people that are gonna have to make sacrifices? Is that the is that the hurdle that we're getting over? Is this a commercial thing? I mean Let me just Because I think you. we all in our hearts we want to help people. Americans are generous people, right? So what's holding us back from So I think there's a lack of knowledge and we have to remember that there are a large group of people in this world who are already making sacrifices for us. Mm. Right? We have people digging uh, for uh, different kinds of minerals that go into making uh, semiconductor materials, right, that power our computers and things like that. People and they're being contaminated shops. and stuff like that. Yeah. They're making sacrifices for us. So if I'm sitting in a place that's over-air-conditioned uh, in the summer in Texas, and then I begrudge someone the energy to refrigerate vaccines in a developing world, who's making a sacrifice? Yeah. I think we, but here's the thing, I think we just haven't framed it. Hmm. We haven't told the story as well. That's the reason why I think it's really important that we have lots of people um, helping to frame the stories, the information that we tell. And when I use the word story, I don't mean fiction. I mean, how do you communicate information? Yeah. You can communicate it through fictionalized stories and dramas, which is really exciting to be working on sort of Mars with Nat Geo, this hybrid series. Uh, stories like Star Trek that says we went through all this stuff and we got to a future that was better. You can tell it through um, how you communicate a science lesson, right? Mm. There, there are lots of different ways. So a lot of my work has been to include other people, to include other voices, and get people involved in space exploration and science who perhaps hadn't been involved or invited in previously. I understand you really want to see more young people getting involved in, in this world that we live in. Again, that's because of the future. You, you seem to be looking 
forward a lot. I know you're involved. Now in I look, I look right here and now. Yes. So with you ever listen to me, people like to make me into a young person stuff. So I work with yes with students. Yes. I started international science camp called the Earth We Share, but I hold adults to task. You know the reason why kids don't learn has nothing to do with kids. It has to do with adults. Mm-hmm. When we have a world where we would rather invest a million dollar per bomb than a million dollars per school. Yeah. We have a problem. That's not the kid's problem. That's the adult's problem. And so I always say that I want to challenge adults to do things. Mm. I look at the future, but I look at the past. I think it's all connected. You know, I work on this project called 100 Year Starship. It's about making sure that we have the capabilities for human interstellar flight within the next 100 years. Is that going to be something that's essential? It's the capabilities. It's not a launch date. We're not trying to develop the enterprise. Why do we want to push on capabilities? Because we need really radical leaps in technology and knowledge. We need to try something we don't know how to do in order to keep us going. We need that adrenaline rush. Everything that's needed for a human interstellar journey to go beyond our solar system mm-hmm. is what we need to survive on this planet. It mirrors it. You talked about these finite resources. Yeah. We're on a starship right now. Yeah. Right. We're on a self-contained that's starship. Really a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And, and, and so... There isn't an endless supply. There's not an endless supply. So we have to figure out how to recycle, how to use, and really how to behave, how to get along. I just love that. And also just the the journey that you have taken and all of those changes that you've taken. And I just think about all the young people today and what's ahead for them, those who will travel into outer space. And I guess there are some people who ask, well, why, if we have this planet, we need to look after this planet. Why are we looking up and why are we wanting to go out into space? Why is that important to continue to go out and explore outside this planet when we've got so much to do down here on earth we can push ourselves harder so sometimes we think that by just staying and staying in this safe place it's okay but it's by pushing more one under your starship our tagline is we believe pursuing an extraordinary tomorrow creates a better world today Mm. it's by doing those things that we actually don't know how to do that we push harder that makes a difference what's it going to take do you think for the majority of people to wake up. We have to honor empathy and caring that they shouldn't be dirty words. Mm. There's something strange going on right now where if you say, I want to do good, people look like like you just want to be a do-gooder. What's wrong with being a do-gooder? Yeah. Right? Have you noticed that that's, yeah. that's like a bad thing? It's like thing? a stigma attached to it. It's a do-gooder. Yeah. How did that get to be a bad thing? Yeah. Right? And that everything should be done for profit. Mm-hmm. What we have to mix with that is this understanding that we're connected to the earth and to each other, and there is nothing wrong with doing good. If you look back on your life and you're sitting and having a little reverie about your life, what's the, what's the thing, what are the things that you want to be remembered for? What, what, what are the things that are most important to you in life? To be willing to risk things and to dare. And you've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who straps themselves to a rocket, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's like, wow. <laughs> you know, I have this crazy desire to go up there. I really do. And if we can make contributions that, you know, can I, can I leave the world a little bit better than what I found it? Yeah, well, you've already 
You've already done that. I have a couple of questions I'd love to ask you. Okay. Uh, I'm just interested. You're clearly someone who likes to laugh. What makes you laugh? I am really ashamed to say that yeah. I laugh at slapstick stuff. Okay. So you go on the internet and, and say, see cats and things doing crazy tricks and it makes you laugh? And... No, no. It's, I, it's, it's the people falling. <laughs> There's nothing Not wrong with that. Not hurting themselves. Yeah. <laughs> but I will help, right? But I always tell people, because I laugh at myself if I fall. Yeah. I don't know. This is the slapstick stuff. Um, there was this series of pictures about dumb things that men do. And why they have where a, would you a where would you start that list? <laughs> and like guys like climbing out on the side of a skyscraper, standing <laughs> on an air conditioner, trying to pass stuff to somebody else, or two guys like passing a big couch over the side of a balcony rail and one guy underneath gonna catch it. What in the blue? I mean, I know that's just like, until it laughed until I cried and I started sinning around. It was one of those things that you see just randomly on the internet and it's just so if over I, and over if again. If I type in dumb things that guys do, will we'll, some of these- You might will... find it. <laughs> what about a, a road trip, May, if you could take anybody from history and you, you well, maybe we should say, Instead of a road trip driving across America, if you could take three people in the capsule with you up into space, who would you take with you if you could choose your passengers? My cats. Really? Okay. So I would have loved, the thing that surprised me about space is I tried to make myself afraid. And I thought it would have been, you know, that, you know, having people there would have been perfect. But I would have loved to have been by myself in a bubble and all I would have needed was my cat sneeze. It was that, I felt that connected with the rest of the universe. I know that sounds uh, a little bit, but it's it was that much of a, uh, an inclusive feeling. You know, you asked about a road trip across the country, a small car for a long period of time, that's kind of rough. <laughs> <laughs> you can have arguments and fall out with people and then that you, might break that you know what i love thing. may it's like we get i ask people that question they say oh i want the dalai lama i want mother Teresa. i want the pope and you're like nah i think i'll just take my cats <laughs> <laughs> i love that and and just thinking you know one of the i, I was lucky enough to go on oprah's show once and we were talking about taking your last breath and, and the things that, you know, you think about and what you would do if you knew you only had one day to live. What would you do with that day? The things, I guess, that would be most precious to you. So I just wondered about that. If, if, if you knew the end was coming, like, what would you do with that last day on Earth? Or maybe I, not on Earth. <laughs> I don't know. I'd probably go outside on a field by myself and just think and, and, and feel and experience the, the universe around me. Because every day I try to, the best I can, not leave anything unspoken and have said or to try to do things that I'm going to have to redress with people later on. So in that case, what's most important is to connect with the, with the universe because I'm going back to it. Because we're made up of star stuff. So we're going back to it. May, you're amazing. And I, I want to thank you for mustering up the energy to come up here and talk to some crazy <laughs> New Zealand guy you've never met before. And I know you've been through a huge day today and you, you are truly amazing. 
Thank you. And a, and a real inspiration. And I, I know that people are going to get a real kick out of, you know, the thing I love the most too is just your, you have such a great life force and your sense of humor. <laughs> you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. <laughs>